This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, just in from a nearly sold-out show at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, like one of those old Yanni or Pavarotti concerts among the Roman ruins, it's Jessica Yellen, chief White House correspondent for CNN. Gotta say, though, Barack Obama behind that ballistic glass looked more like David Blaine peering out from a bubble in Times Square. Then, I'm running for Congress! No. Well, maybe. Who hasn't harbored illusions or delusions that you, too, might be given a fat lapel pin with an American Eagle on it, a two-day crash course at Harvard's Kennedy School, and handed a job with an eager beaver young staff and a salary of $174,000 per year. Best job in the world, right? Fundraising's a piece of cake. Well, it turns out that New York's 19th Congressional District has, some would say, a beatable two-term Republican incumbent. Should I take him on? What will it take to win? We'll ask one of the world's foremost strategy experts on such matters, Jeff Pollack, president of Global Strategy Group and a card-carrying member of the Screen Actors Guild. Then, finally, we learned this week of the passing of two groundbreaking people in their fields, both taken far too young. BuzzFeed's Michael Hastings, a guest on this show earlier this year, died in Los Angeles at 33. And in Rome, the world lost one of its great transformative actors, James Gandolfini at 51. From portraying Tony Soprano to Leon Panetta, Gandolfini exuded through just his eyes the very human self-doubt in even the most powerful people. We'll talk from L.A. with his longtime agent, my dear friend, Norman Elagium, president of Levity Entertainment Group. But first, scraping the sand from her eyes just off the red-eye press charter by way of Berlin, Germany, and a skill in Northern Ireland, here to debrief us on the just-concluded European foray of our 44th president, it's Jess Yellen, my old friend. Welcome home. Hi. Um, are we awake? Is this my wake-up call? Uh, yes, it is. We got You got your 4 p.m. wake-up call to get out of bed after your return to Joint Base Andrews last night. How was the trip? It was, uh, it was non-stop, but a lot of fun for us. Uh, I think somewhat of a success for the president. A little bit of a question mark there. Uh, first question, did the valets have replacement shirt on hand for the president after 28 minutes on the east side of the Brandenburg Gate? Oh my, that was something else. He was hot. I mean, it was so, it was 90 plus degrees outside and he was wearing a dark suit. I'll tell you, I'm always impressed by his ability to uh, sustain himself in any temperatures. I always thought it was the Hawaii upbringing. This might be the first time I have seen him truly sweat. Like, I can't deal with it. I'm doing what I need to do. Take my jacket off. Although I had one other theory about that, which is the teleprompter went down. Yeah. And maybe he took the jacket off to say, uh, as like a stalling tactic to see if the teleprompter would go back up. That was sort of a slow removal of the jacket, wasn't it? Yeah, a little like, well, well, let's not go there. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can go there. This is polyoptics. Let's hear a little bit of your package from yesterday. In the heart of Berlin, President Obama sought his place in history. It's so warm, and I feel so good that I'm actually going to take off my jacket. Speaking on the east side of the Brandenburg Gate, where Germany was once divided. We can be a little more informal among friends. Kennedy famously spoke at this gate. Ich bin ein Berliner. And President Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. But the comparison President Obama can't escape is to his own speech five years ago. We will not leave our children to a world where the oceans rise and famine spreads and terrible storms devastate our lands. At a site just blocks away, then-candidate Obama drew a cheering crowd of 200,000, so massive it inspired this attack ad called Celebrity. Is he ready to lead? The estimated size of today's crowd, much smaller. Close to 4,500 invited guests. Jessica Allen, Chief White House Correspondent of CNN, here on Polyoptics with us. What was putting that package together like because of the obvious comparisons and what the what Palmieri and, and Pfeiffer and others in the White House might have wanted to not have those comparisons made? Well, you know, they the, the, the White House wanted this to be 
you know, honestly, we don't know what the White House wanted this speech to be. As part of the problem, I still don't know what that speech was really about. If you had to give it a one theme sentence, one sen- it, it just doesn't reduce down to that. Uh, and so that's always a problem when um, the message in the speech doesn't trump what the politics and the optics tell you about uh, when the po- politics and the optics are driving the story. Um, so there, they, I'm sure, wanted it to be about the big themes. Um, but you couldn't help but notice the difference. And the story of this trip for B- B- Berlin was he was a rock star five years ago. And that enthusiasm has dimmed and it parallels the experience of supporters in the U.S. Maybe, you know, you'd say they could never live up to that hype and expectation, but it's there. It's changed. And 200,000 five years ago, 4,500 yesterday Gosh, you gotta you gotta take that into account. You gotta pay attention to it. Uh, do you really? I mean, I, let's let's dig into the the optics of this a little bit because I had to study it closely. It's it's the passion that I have, and you know there were a couple things wrong there uh, uh, from the way I, I saw the stagecraft, Go. which was, you know, I've been I've been this in this place so many times, Jess, which is. You do the pre-advance. You see the Brandenburg Gate. You think about the history of Kennedy and and Reagan and Clinton. You think it's a box that you have to check. Uh, the why the politics don't was, speak. Why did he have to go to the? No, I told. Go ahead. No, let's talk. I mean, I don't think he had to go to the Brandenburg Gate. It well, was a moment when. Uh, he didn't necessarily. He didn't really have a message to deliver. I mean, what is "Ich bin ein Berliner"? Tear down this wall. What is the message? The one sentence that you take away from that speech with? Why not wait for a moment when he really had a message to deliver? A timeless theme. Also, he could have. I mean, that space. He could have chosen a space if he wanted to draw tens of thousands, not even hundreds. They could have done it where there would have been the room. They picked a space that was intentionally small, uh, but. They gave away 6,000 tickets. Only 4,500 right. showed up. Right. So uh, what I was going to finish by saying which was uh, um, the realities, the practical realities of security are such that uh, it seems, and I'm just guessing here, but I'm looking at the walkout picture that you included in your package. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of a clean picture for pool photographers to get uh, the mayor, Merkel, and Obama against the gate. Uh, but then they get in front of this David Blaine-like bubble, yeah. uh, t- terrible reflection from the head-on pool. Uh, back in our day, I could have negotiated at least a gap the way it is at the inaugural, so you were sh- looking at straight through the podium uh, cleanly without looking through glass. But, uh, you know, the Twitter sphere lit up that both the teleprompter was going down and the glass was, was so glary. So, and um, you look at the high ground around you behind the press riser, tons of unsecurable windows I think that's what drove the 4,000 or 6,000 ticket decision for it's a very different for Senator Obama in Berlin in 2008 versus a president who you can't afford the Germans to have a terrible accident there so it was a recipe for problems if you were actually going to go to the gate. Well, I understand. You you make an, a good point about the security concerns, and I did notice, we all took note of how extreme the security concerns were. It, it even seems like uh, the service was on heightened alert. You know, sometimes you can just tell from body language and how attuned they are to everything that it was... There was some, it just it felt like security was intense. We went even went back and looked at the old video, uh, and when Bill Clinton spoke there, he, President Clinton had plexiglass uh, up to his chin, and no higher. Uh, from the camera angle we saw, and it, not the way it was for. President Obama, where it was way up over his head, sort of left me wondering, well, if you're going up to the chin, why, why not go all the way? <laughs> right. No. <laughs> what it's, is it's, that about? But it's it's just about angle. It's about angles. It's going east to the east side versus the west side. It's where you can it's where 5000 yards are in a sniper's bullet. Um, but you, you, sh- you should be able to negotiate that. But open may I say, space. yes, when these guys want to put on a big show, they make security work around them yeah. when they can draw the crowd. They make security work around them. They just didn't. I mean, I don't want to make too big a deal of how many people turned out, but it it was worth noting that it was just the enthusiasm has shifted. And that speaks to something much larger that he isn't that he has continued a lot of President Bush's war on terror practices that Europe was expecting him to get rid of whole cloth. 
Merkel gave him uh, a full earful about that, didn't she? Yeah, she sure did. Especially NSA surveillance, because they have that history with the secret police in East Germany, and it, it chills them. And she's facing re-ele- you know, re-election, her own election concerns that she has to talk about. Let's go farther back in this uh, very uh, abbreviated 70-some-odd-hour trip. We're in Northern Ireland. Let's hear the British uh, talk about the photo op outside the G8. Under the grey skies of Loch Erne, the G8 leaders step out for the traditional family photo. But there were no ties this time as leaders were told to dress in smart, casual attire on day two of the Global Power Summit. And as they prepared for a long day of discussions on Syria, tax avoidance and terrorism, it appeared they were already unable to reach their first agreement, this time over how they should wave. And after several abortive attempts to wave in unison, they gave up and returned to the luxury golf resort to begin the day's business in earnest. Oh, just yelling. The, the, the British set the standard for polyoptic supporting, right. don't they? <laughs> That's great. Uh, I, you know, I think that the president also thinks it's uh, hysterical how much stock we put in all this stuff. Uh, But I couldn't get over it. First of all, Putin showed up in jeans, which I loved. I thought that was hysterical. You know, newly divorced. Free, ready. Free and single, rocking the jeans and boots. After he did like the stand-up interview to say he's divorced with his wife next (laughs) door. And then they went to the, didn't they go to the opera the next day or the ballet just to show they're still friends? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that was about. Uh, and then what was it? Then I didn't get Cameron when they did all the family photo ca- or they did the press conference. All the men wore, wore were tieless, but Cameron also was the only one who was jacketless. I guess the host is more casual than everyone else. I really couldn't figure out what th- I'm usually good at reading this. I don't know what that was about. Again, I go back to my trip to Northern Ireland, a uh, far different time and setting uh, Belfast, 1995. Uh just a, a, the peace process was just beginning, a moment of great hope. Clinton was the guy who was bringing everyone together. What was the vibe like for you and the press corps in Northern Ireland? Well, the vibe was um, a country apart. I mean, it's ridiculous how we do these trips now because they've isolated us from the G8 uh, to such a ex- degree that we were in a different country this time. So they were in Northern Ireland. The press was in Ireland. And so we fly all the way over there. And, you know, unless you have a pool rotation or you make your own trip over there, you could never see them and have not a sense at all of what's going on over there except for emailing and calling, which you could really do from anywhere in the world. So uh, it's a little bizarre how these... And this is all, you know, they started isolating these summits now ever since the protests got so intense around some of these global meetings. I just think that's the worst thing. I mean, it's... And it's probably... It's the reality. Either you... You know, maybe not have fewer of these summits or figure out how to reintegrate them with people. It makes... I mean, I agree. We have less and less access to their lead, our leaders. And, you know, it's necessary to some extent for security, but it's also because, you know, this way they get to answer fewer questions. It makes sense that they get fewer interruptions. But, uh, yeah, they have to find... It. This balance is sort of kooky. And then you schlep all the way to Europe for basically 78 hours? This was... I can't count now. I'm so overtired. But yes, it was, I think, three and a half days. We were in Ireland and then we were in two days in Berlin, which I have to say is an astonishingly beautiful city. So that was well worth it. When we landed, my producer and I took a cab ride around the city just to see, you know, we were cheesy tourists. And we kept giving like, will you take us to the Brandenburg Gate now? Will you take us to the Reichstag? Would you take us? Drove around. It was great. That's how you see a trip when you're a White House press corps, when you see a city as, as White House press, half an hour in a taxi at midnight. Let's talk about the substance of your job as chief White House correspondent now for CNN. I want to hear a little exchange. You were pressing uh, Press Secretary Jay Carney pretty uh, vigorously on the NSA surveillance from last week. Representative Peter King has said that he believes that Glenn Greenwald should be prosecuted. Uh, for his leaks. Does the president share that view, first of all? And secondly, uh, Speaker Boehner today said that he's surprised the White House has not spoken out more forcefully in defense of the program 
and explaining more forcefully uh, why it's necessary. Would you just react to that? Well, I think you heard the President speak about uh, his views on the program and the necessity, the programs that in question here, and the necessity to have such programs uh, in place uh, in order to protect our national security. And I think you heard uh, the President make clear that he believes that the, in, in the, the trade-offs that we have to make uh, to pursue our security uh, and protect our privacy, uh, we have found through the system we have the right balance. Uh, but he understands that others may have a different opinion and that the debate uh, about that is uh, an important one. The always lighthearted and jocular Jay Carney. <laughs> it's sometimes really difficult in the briefing room because all of what we all do is we ask questions we'd like to an- get answers to. He's in a position where he can't actually give an answer, and we all go in there knowing that's going to happen, and yet we do it all every day. You know, sometimes it gets you you push really hard and sometimes you just think oh we all know what's going on here <laughs> so next question so from a career standpoint i mean is do you does a chief white house correspondent these days stay for a long time and become mark noller or or can you put up with this or just because eventually you get to another campaign and another administration and it gets fresh again is it something that can be a long term gig oh i think it can be a long term job but you know it sort of depends on uh, other factors. I mean, it's hard on your life. It's just, it's beyond the press Europe room. one week, Africa the next, right? We are one week, Africa the next. Also just the constant, I'm always tethered to my BlackBerry. Anything happens, I feel responsible. You know, we have many uh, correspondents and there are other White House correspondents, but my title's chief and I feel like if something goes down, I have to at all times be alert. And so you really can't just let your guard down and chill in the same way that I could before I had this job. So at a certain level, that just gets exhausting after a while. Um, and I think that's why people in the White House get burned out, too. You know, that's it's a weird thing because on, you're on opposite sides, but you both share the people inside and outside. I think you might remember this. Both share this 24-7 anxiety that comes from being a, attached in any way to the White House. Well, I hope that in the upcoming uh, trip to Africa and uh, the amazing things that that the president gets to see, that the press corps traveling along will get to see some of these things as well. And you have a wonderful trip. Thank you. I really hope we do not get stuck in a basement uh, ballroom doing our reports every day, because too often at these trips we do that. And in Africa, we just can't. Think they'll let us out of the ballroom? You got to talk to Palmieri about that. <laughs> will you put in a good word for I, us? I will get her to get her to bring you guys on your own uh, on your own special tour. Because that's the beauty of these old trips that we used to do not two trip not two countries in seventy eight hours. We used to do six countries in eight days. No. Yeah. You'd go for eight days? Sure. I can't imagine if we did eight days, we would probably go to sixteen countries. We did a lot. I could go back and like the first couple trips. Through, you know, the big swing through Europe, the big swing through Asia. Uh, we'd, we'd definitely do five or six countries. That's great. I mean, I overstate, but really, in eight days, we'd probably have to go to five countries at least. That'd yeah. be amazing. Well, to go back in time. Jessica Allen, thanks so much for thanks joining for us. Thanks for having me. Bye. Coming up after the break, Jeff Pollock, President, Global Strategy Group. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. We're joined now in our studio by Jeff Pollack, president of the Global Strategy Group. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you for having me. Big news this week. Uh, Joe Manchin, who eventually will have to run for re-election to the United States Senate, uh, has put together a new ad to strike back at his critics from the National Rifle Association who would say that he is too cozy with New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the Democrats, on gun control. Before we talk to you, Jeff, and about all your work and the firm and even your turn uh, in front of the camera. Let's hear the ad for Joe Manchin today. I'm Joe Manchin, and I approve this message to bring common sense to Washington. I'm a lifetime NRA member, but I don't walk in lockstep with the NRA's Washington leadership, this administration, or any special interest group. West Virginia, you know me. I haven't changed. 
And you know I've always fought for our gun rights. I believe that we can protect the Second Amendment and make our communities safer. I think most law-abiding gun owners agree with me. Call the NRA and tell them to support criminal background checks. Jeff Pollack, president of Global Strategy Group. The script is one thing, as we just heard, the beauty of radio. But the visuals are quite arresting. Mm-hmm. He's got a carbine rifle. Uh, he's loading it, uh, with, uh, and he's sh- aiming, shooting. Uh, this is uh, former governor, now Senator Manchin, showing every bit the hunter that he is, uh, something that you think is wise for a guy in his position? Well, look, Senator Manchin is an incredible politician, uh, and he's taken an amazing um, jump in terms of taking the lead on this background check what he did in terms of bringing um, Senator Toomey around and and trying to build a bipartisan coalition to move forward on common sense gun legislation is laudable. Um, The notion that Mike Bloomberg and Joe Manchin would ever be in the same ad together is is sort of laughable uh, from from both of them. Um, And I I think they both agree. I mean, the, the, the problem here is that the NRA has gone a field or far afield, and and they sort of uh, I feel like they have lost their way a bit. So you've got Senator Manchin who's trying to fight back and say, look, there's the NRA. The NRA was the person or the group that went on the air first. They put up an ad criticizing Senator Manchin, and his reelection isn't for six years. This has nothing to do with reelection. This has to do with fighting back against the NRA and saying, look, I'm not going to just take it sitting down. Maybe other people will, but I don't really care. Like I know that I'm right on this. Americans agree with me across the country and West Virginia and NRA members all agree. So you know what? I've got campaign funds. I'm going to strike back and I'm not going to take it sitting down. So God bless Joe Manchin. Well, Senator Manchin may not be up for re-election soon, but uh, the entire House of Representatives will be, mm-hmm. among them a large stable of your clients, uh, going for re-election and a bunch of people uh, trying to win a new seat. Mm-hmm. How are you consulting with them about where they come down on uh, background checks, Manchin, Toomey, and, and other difficult issues that in their districts may be uh, real problems in primary situations. Well, I mean, in the House, it's really not that difficult because, of course, the Republican House has decided to block most things that are anything that have any common sense uh, to them. So there really isn't a vote to talk about in terms of background checks. People get asked about it, but again, when you're asked about it in a in a political context and people are asked, given that 80 or 90 percent or 75 percent, depending on where you are, agree with these background check measures, it's relatively safe ground for most folks. Now, some of my folks are very conservative uh, Democrats and, and in conservative states, and some of them disagree. Um, so it really depends on on the member, Josh. But I, but uh, big picture, uh, most people know that it's the Republican House and the sort of ideological lops, lockstep with the NRA that's the thing that's out of step with America. And so they feel like they're on pretty safe ground. Uh, are you have any of them embarked on some polling or research uh, through GSG in terms of figuring out exactly how to position or message themselves in their district or their state? No, I mean, it's a little early for any of that kind of polling, um, given that the election, even in the House, you know, for most of these guys, is a year pl- a year plus out. So it's it's all feels early. And there's been a tremendous volume of public polling on this issue, not the least of whom has been Michael Bloomberg, who's put out any number of polls within these congressional districts to show just how high support is for these very common sense measures. I mean, who is it who really opposes um, the notion that we should restrict those who are mentally ill from getting guns or criminals from getting guns? It is sort of preposterous when you just ask the question on its face. Switching gears a bit, here we are, the first day of summer. Uh, It is a year and a half from the the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. What is that like in the life cycle or the cyclical nature of a major political consulting firm? Are is uh, you're hiring a bit down? Are you talking with your incumbent clients about their reelection plans? Are you out fishing for, for trying to incite new candidates mm-hmm. to run? Yeah, well, we're, we're always fishing for new candidates, that's for sure, because uh, uh, we always want to make sure that every race is, is competitive. So there's no doubt that there's a, a good piece of that going on. There's a lot of talking to incumbents, a lot of dealing with the issues of the day and talking through where we see things going for the next year and a half. Um, uh, For most political consulting firms, um, what's fascinating um, is that the cycle has changed so much. And and it used to be one of these things where we were very busy in these even years um, and not very busy in these odd years. But the truth is, is that politics has become so 24 hours and the cycle has become a two-year or four-year cycle. So, I mean, look, we, we said it before. We're talking about Senator Joe Manchin. He's up for re-election in six years, and yet we're talking about it. So um, th- there is no up and down the way that there used to be. And so it's a much more constant 
um, stream of dealing with things. And that's partially, the, the news media is partially to blame, and I don't mean that in a negative way necessarily, but that's a, a sort of causal point that there's all this stuff that's happening all the time and people need to be on all the time. The other thing that's different is that because of social media and because everybody and their mother has a phone on them at all points in time and a phone and a recorder, we need to remind people that they are on all the time and they can't forget that like every interaction that they have is a public interaction. There is no such thing as off the record really anymore. As you've re- recently written about it, your firm has posted some of those uh, rules of the road. Indeed. Uh, what are the stakes involved in perhaps uh, uh, the Democrats being able to once again call Minority Leader Pelosi Madam Speaker, and what do you think the odds are? Well, I, I, th- I think the odds are, are getting better every day because uh, you see a general frustration with the Republican House, um, and I think that we see we saw yet another example of that yesterday when John Boehner decided to put up yet another roadblock um, to common sense legislation that most people agree with. I mean, comprehensive immigration reform. The Senate is working very hard. You see great work, bipartisan. It's fantastic, Um, whether it's Senator Schumer or Senator Rubio. I mean, bringing people together to try to get something done. And you can actually see the legislative process working in the Senate, whereas in the House, you can see it largely grinding to a halt. Uh, And so the voters are going to, and they already are frustrated. Now, the burden that the Democrats have um, is that because of redistricting, some of the stakes, some of it's gotten a bit harder. Um, And and that's because we had a bad year in terms of victories in 2010. Well, that's our bad luck. We can't cry over the spilled milk. But it is true that by redistricting, it's gotten a little bit harder, but far from impossible. Uh, And I think that uh, Chairman Israel, Steve Israel, the chairman of the DCCC, is working incredibly hard to make sure that every district is put in play uh, that possibly can. He's out there recruiting great candidates. And when you put that up against the obstinate Republican House, I think there's a real opportunity. You have worked uh, in, at the independent expenditure level mm-hmm. in the past presidential campaign. You worked for Al Gore in 2000, but with uh, Barack Obama not able to run for re-election, presumably an open field of Democrats. Mm-hmm. In the political consulting community, is it a welcome moment where a bunch of Democrats are bashing each other, but uh, full employment for consultants? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we, lo- we love primaries and we hate primaries, right? For consultants, we love it because, of course, there's 17 different Democrats running. Um, but uh, right now, uh, for certainly in a presidential race, we all feel like there's one candidate to, to watch out for and, and nobody else. And so um, we, we, all are, we all in the political consulting class are following the Twitter feed of Hillary Clinton the exact same way that the media is with rapt attention to see exactly what she is going to do and, and not do. TBD. She TBD. Said. I saw it's in the profile. Yes. Uh, do you think she re-ups with her uh, her regular pollster? Uh, well, I don't know about that. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you may know better than me. But I mean, it's it's a it's a long way. I think I think that um, if she runs, I think there's going to be a lot of people. The thing about presidential campaigns that is hard to understand. Um, and it's even hard when I explain it to my friends. It is such a massive operation that is so different than any other campaign. Because it's it's funny. With most campaigns, we always tell people you have one pollster, you have one media consultant, you have one person helping you with direct mail. And if you have multiple of those things, it shows that the campaign has sort of gone awry, right? Because yeah. you need all these message hands. In a presidential campaign, you have eight pollsters and 10 media consultants and all sorts of things. So it's such a massive operation. Uh, and for Hillary Clinton, if she runs, given that there'll be no problem raising money, there'll be incredible enthusiasm from the Democratic base and enormous enthusiasm from women who are hungry uh, for female candidates and a female president, uh, I, I think it just sets up for a, for a great and fantastic campaign and certainly employment for a bunch of consultants. And if I'm lucky enough, God, I'd, I'd be very fortunate. What were the humble roots of uh, Jeff Pollock and Jonathan Sylvain? Oh, well, I mean, they're my, uh, my the humble roots are that my partner, John Sylvain, and I, who started the firm Global Strategy Group way back when in 1995. Um, we actually started in, in John's grandmother's apartment. She unfortunately passed away, unfortunate for her, fortunate for us, because in New York City, uh, that was a rent-controlled apartment, and we moved very quickly into that space um, where a bunch of us, the original partners, uh, got in and worked very hard to start building a, a, a campaign apparatus or a, or a business from there. And it's been an incredible ride from there. But to go from grandma's apartment to, with a couple of folks to now we're um, 65 people in four different cities, uh, I, I'm I'm just thrilled. And, and you know, one of those, the original client, clients I had um, was Carolyn McCarthy, the woman who's Ca- Congressman McCarthy, um, 
who was pushed into action because her husband was killed, unfortunately, tragically, by the Long Island Railroad government. And this is a woman who'd never run for office, a woman who'd never imagined she was going to run for office. Um, and it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate. I mean, we talked about Joe Manchin at the beginning, but you know, Carolyn McCarthy, she was there in the beginning. And just seeing somebody who was inspired to run for office for all the right reasons and who stays in Congress for all the right reasons and now is battling cancer yeah. herself— you know, that, that's the reason that I get up every day. People talk down about politics all the time. You know, look, I love what I do. I love every bit of it. I'm proud of what we do. I'm proud of my clients. And I'm proud of the fact that they have submitted or subjected themselves to the torture of, of politics and what they have to do through through a campaign. But the reasons, by and large, for 9.9 out of 10 of these folks is the right reason. So my specialty is advanced in stagecraft. Your yep. specialty is polling. Uh, you've written about the post-2012 problems with Gallup and basically the state of the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've all sort of come to adopt Nate Silver as the check against the pros. Uh, For our listeners who are not up on the challenges of getting people on the phone versus getting them online versus tapping into their uh, feelings any other way, uh, what's the state of your particular science at the moment? Well, it's, there's there's certainly a lot of questions, and the future of polling is online, but today we're still not ready to devote all of our time, energy, and say we're ready to go online with everything because online population, we still underrepresent minorities, we still upper, underrepresent seniors, although seniors, um, for those who don't know, are the fastest-growing group on Facebook. Um, you know, the grandma is communicating with her grandchild actually more today uh, than before, um, and it's through Facebook. Um, and that's fantastic. You know, it's just a huge, huge advantage. Um, so, I mean, when we think about the the changes in technology, we, the polling industry, have to adapt. But what happened in 2012 and what was so preposterous is there were a bunch of pollsters who were claiming that the electorate was going to be different than most of us on the Democratic side believed. That's part science and part art. But let me give you one example, Josh, that's very frustrating. So some of the Republican pollsters were out there claiming that the percentage of the electorate that was 18 to 29 was going to be smaller this time than last time because, of course, Barack Obama inspired all these young people to vote. That flies in the face of years of logic. When you look back at the history of presidential campaigns, the percentage of the vote that was 18 to 29 has been very, very constant over the last four years presidential election. So whether Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. The percentage of the vote that was 18 to 29 was the same in each one. So saying that that percentage was going to be different was preposterous and and invented science. So all of our science, all of what we do is supposed to be based on history. Now, sometimes history doesn't repeat itself, as we know. The stock market, you know, your broker always says past performance is not indicative. Well, in polling and in politics, it usually is. And so most of us on the Democratic side who are following that historical um, average and historical numbers, we were fine. The truth is for when I was working on Priorities USA, which was the um, super PAC that you mentioned before that was uh, helping Barack Obama, we all saw numbers that saw that, that that saw Barack Obama after the first presidential debate, which obviously the president did not do particularly well in. The numbers all sort of crashed together. But beyond that, past like October, I think it was 10th, for the next three weeks, there were no changes in the data. And so our side, the, the priority side, as well as I know the Obama side, now that we, we can look back and talk at this, we knew for a, for a month that Barack Obama was going to win. I, I never doubted it. And Nate Silver, in that context, was a great check. And in the last four weeks of the of the campaign, I can't tell you how many emails I was sending to people saying, "Just trust Nate Silver." And it's and Nate is is brilliant and awesome and and great. But what Nate was doing more than anything was factoring out noise. Right? He was saying, "Look." Look at the averages. When you take five polls and put them together, the average is probably right, particularly if you throw out the ones that he knows were garbage. Now, Nate may not be spending too much of his attention on New York 19. Nope. Uh, Let's hear... I can help him. I'd be happy to have him up. (laughs) Let's talk about me for a few (laughs) minutes. Um, Let's hear an ad that that for one of the clients uh, that you had in the last cycle, uh, Julian Schreibman ran uh, for Congress in the New York... in the 19th district of New York, Greene County, a place that I I now have a bit of property. This is Julian Schreibman. As a prosecutor, Julian Schreibman convicted drug dealers. He put violent criminals behind bars. Now he'll fight for us. Congress is broken, and our congressman, Chris Gibson, is part of the problem. Gibson voted with the Tea Party to gut Medicare, forcing seniors to pay thousands more while giving a tax cut to millionaires. I'll fight for the middle class. Julian Schreibman for Congress. I'm Julian Schreibman, and I approve this message to protect Medicare. 
So, Jeff Bollock, I, gave, I came to your buzzing office in Union Square a few weeks ago. Let's say I come back there again. It's uh, late June. I see that there's not yet a confirmed candidate, although uh, there's certainly some buzz out there that there will be. Um, I'd like to run, but you're very good at giving candidates bad news. What are you going to tell me? Yeah, I do. I give candidates bad news all the time. And in that district, Senator Gillibrand frequently tells a story which is absolutely horrible for me, which she tells all about how I told her when she came to me, said, should I run for Congress? And we did a poll. I was like, good Lord, you have you can't win this thing. Don't run. Uh, and of course she did. Now she's an unbelievable rising star United States senator. Um, uh, so the the data, when you look at the data, sometimes it can be very daunting. And that district is, is tough, um, but it's actually gotten easier since Senator Gillibrand left. Because of redistricting, that, date, that district um, is about a 50-50 Democrat versus Republican district in terms of uh, performance. You've got in Chris Gibson, a guy who's been able to pull out a couple of tough wins for sure. Um, but I would tell you, you know, Josh, if you, if you were looking at that race, I'd tell you there's no question if you can raise the money that that race is a is an is an absolute race that can be won. The problem with that race is that it's split up into two different markets: the Albany market, the Albany New York market, which is a relatively affordable market, and the New York City market, which is unaffordable to most human beings on the planet. Uh, and so you have to raise a ton of money, and unless you can raise a ton of money, it's going to be really hard to beat an incumbent. But if you can, and if you can raise a lot of money. I think there's a way to show people that Chris Gibson isn't the guy that he's pretended to be. He's not the moderate that he said he is. He has voted a number of times along very strict ideological and Tea Party lines. And so once we get that candidate, whether it's you or the person who's talking about running up there, who I certainly hope uh, will run, Sean Eldridge, uh, who I think will be a fantastic candidate if he decides to run. Um, uh, you know, that, that if you can raise the money, there's no question that Chris Gibson is one of those guys that can be taken out. So Julian uh, made his home in uh, Ulster. In Ulster, uh, uh, Sean runs a business up there, mm-hmm. uh, certainly well financed. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the peculiarities of me again. I'm I live in Manhattan. I own a second home out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Maloney proved that you can possibly win in a, a place that you don't uh, spend a hundred percent of your time. How do I go about actually convincing the residents of uh, New York 19 that I'm one of them and I want to be a part of their their world? Well, New, New Yorkers are kind of used to people coming in from other places, in particular from the city. Uh, the the number of, of city folk who've gone and made their residence in other places, people are used to it uh, and frankly welcoming of it when you go to Dutchess and Ulster and Green and Columbia and all those places. Uh, and so Sean Patrick Maloney, of course, endured a tough campaign where the Republicans were beating up on him for being a carpetbagger um, incessantly. And we had lots of conversations about it uh, whereby we said, you know, look, the voters just don't care. They want to know that somebody represents their values. They want to know that you share their values, talk about the issues that they care about. And in that race, for example, which I think has some similarities to the to the Gibson race, you had a candidate in Nan Hayworth who was way out of step with the district. I mean, she represented, she was voting the Republican Party line that was completely out of step with that district, and particularly very conservative. And I think Gibson's got a bunch of, uh, of problems on that front as well, voting for the Ryan budget, uh, for example, which guts Medicare. So uh, that's the way to do it. Um, so to some extent, as it is in every race where you're running against an incumbent, and you know this, Josh, it's not about you, it's about the incumbent. Um, and if the voters aren't willing to fire an incumbent uh, at the at the sort of election day, then that incumbent's going to win. The voters have to make a decision about, am I going to keep this person who I've had around my house for the last couple of years, or am I going to let him go? Uh, and you've got to prove that there's a reason to let him go. Uh, and unfortunately for Julian, we just weren't able to, to make that persuasive a case last time. But uh, we're going to take it to Congressman Gibson this time, I believe. Let's presume my cupboard is bare. Mm-hmm. How much do I have to raise and how much do I have to pay GPG to, uh, do, oh, to GSG? Well, we're, we're, the, we're the cheap part of the, of the campaign. Pollsters are the smallest part of the campaign. We represent about 7% of a, of a total campaign budget. Um, uh, it's the, the media guys that, that take all the money for good reason because they put it on TV um, and the Internet and the radio and places uh, that, we, that we need to, to contact voters who, when, they're, when they're listening. Um, by the way, on a on a you know satellite note, the number of um, uh, dollars that are being spent online and satellite and all that's growing tremendously. And so people are studying the new forms of communication and knowing that TV dollars need to decrease and other dollars need to increase. So you know that that's that's going to happen. How much money do you need to raise? It's a two million dollar race at a minimum. Um, like we, we shouldn't even start having the conversation unless you can show me a path to that. And that in itself, of course, is preposterous. We know that it's crazy. It's why many folks support public financing. 
um, in our state, in New York, the governor's doing a tremendous job trying to push forward public financing. You have many of these candidates who support it because the truth is the average congressperson spends far too much time raising money and far too little time doing doing policy. And that's unfortunate. Uh, and even though I think uh, public finance is probably not that good for my business, uh, it's certainly good for American democracy. Uh, so you know, for that, I guess we'll, 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 we'll let democracy win. Jeff Pollock, not only are you one of America's best pollsters, but you also play one on film. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I want to play a cut from Bradley Cooper in The Place Beyond the Pines and tell me how you came about to be a, now an actor as well as a pollster. You're joking, right? I said, Chief, this ain't my problem, all right? This is your problem. This is our problem of the police department and I'm bringing it to your attention because that's what I should do. Oh yeah, is that right? Yeah. Is that what you should do? Right out of the cops? This is unbelievable, right? Get the out of here. Obviously rated R, Jeff Pollock. How can you do movie. such a movie like that? <laughs> it's a family movie. Uh, it was very hard to tell my kids who were like, Ma, Daddy, can we go see the movie? I was like, no, absolutely not. Not a chance. Um, How'd it come about? It was, uh, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate. Uh, it was a complete luck. Um, uh, complete luck and complete happenstance. So the director of the movie is a guy named Derek C.M. France, uh, who's a brilliant director, directed Blue Valentine, um, received great acclaim for that, uh, and um, and obviously very close with Ryan Gosling, who was there, who was in that movie, and then in, in Place Beyond the Pines. Um, and Derek is an accuracy Shot freak. up in the district, by the way. Shot up in, uh, up in Ski Day in yeah. Schenectady uh, and, um, and Troy. Um, and uh, so Derek is an accuracy freak. He wants to make sure that everything is absolutely accurate. Um, and there were a couple of scenes, Bradley Cooper, not to spoil some of the, the plot, but since the movie's out already, Bradley Cooper at some point runs for attorney general of New York. And so Derek wanted to have somebody on set who understood the basics of the campaign and what happened. And particularly there's a victory speech um, shot and he wanted to make sure that was accurate. And so Derek asked one of the producers, who's a guy named Jamie Patrickoff, and Jamie's brother John, and I go back a long time in New York politics. And so Jamie asked his brother, he said, who can I have? He said, yeah, call Jeff. And so I got an email saying, hey, are you interested in coming up for a movie? And I'm like, interested in coming? Of course, you know, politics is Hollywood for ugly people, as so said Reagan. So I'm, I'm happy to come up to, uh, to do the movie. And, and so I did. I was there for three days. I helped on some of the scenes where there were some things that were not quite accurate, and we we made it accurate. And uh, I knew I was going to have some lines, and I knew I was going to be asked to to be in some scenes. But I just figured I'd get cut um, because I certainly have a face for radio. Uh, and uh, I was really really fortunate that uh, two of the scenes stuck in, and they were incredibly nice to me. Bradley and I also went to school together. He's five years younger than I am. Um, but you know, when I got there, he was he when I got on the set. He was so nice. He was like, oh, Jeff, you know, do you remember this person? What did that? I was like, you're Bradley Cooper. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to have this conversation. But they were so nice. They invited me to the premiere in Toronto. And it's, it's uh, you know, aside from marriage and children, it's it's probably the one of the most exciting things I've ever done. Catch him in any one of a score of uh, congressional or Senate races in 2014 or download him now on iTunes, The Place Beyond the Pines. Jeff Pollack. President, Global Strategy Group, thank you very much for joining us. On thank Polyopsis. you. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned at the open, uh, under these circumstances, the death this week of both Michael Hastings and then James Gandolfini, I emailed last night one of my oldest and dearest friends, Norma Lajum, uh, who, when I worked with him in Los Angeles, he was uh, my agent, and now he is president of Levity Entertainment Group. And while I was an agent that I think maybe earned him all of $7,000 uh, over the course of our collaboration, uh, he was also, for many years, the agent of James Gandolfini. Uh, knows him closely both as an actor and as a friend, and I, I wanted to spend a few minutes uh, welcoming Norm to the show and also speaking about James Gandolfini in a perhaps different context than than as Tony Soprano. Welcome, Norm, to Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be on your show. Uh, let's and hear... I, I think the $7,000 that uh, I made off you were very well-earned dollars. <laughs> I hope you <laughs> spent them wisely. Um, your your thoughts, uh, hearing the news as I did this week uh, of James's <clears throat> passing. I mean, sadness, shock, disbelief. You know, the, Jim was fifty one years old. That's that's very young 
to be, you know, leaving us. Um, and Jim was a very big part of my professional life back in the Soprano days when we represented him. So it, it, it was jarring, to say the least, to hear. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Jim Gandolfini as Tony Soprano and then talk about your collaboration. But we are a family. And even in this fucked up day and age, that means something. So we're going to deal with this as a family, together. No matter how it affects anybody, personal safety-wise, financially-wise, whatever. Now you listen to me. You're going to get my wife or my family and I'll fucking kill you. You understand me? I'll fucking kill you. You're lucky you don't get your head handed to you. Dad. Let's get something straight. You eat, I pay. Mr. Soprano. But when you have your own family, you pay. You know my father. You grew up around Dickie Moltisanti and your Uncle Eddie. Where, where do you get off acting all surprised and miffed when there were women on the side? You knew the deal. Norma Lagem, you were writers and artists at the time. How did your relationship with Gandolfini begin? Well, you know, interestingly enough, um, Jim was found by a former colleague of mine named David Brownstein, and I, I don't even remember. It's funny, I was trying to think this morning. I don't even remember where David found him. He was brought to us for representation. And you could tell, you know, he'd already done a number of films and so forth as a character actor. He'd been on Broadway. We knew he was a good actor. Um, what, what ended up happening and the iconic role he played and how he changed television and a lot of people's lives and careers, nobody could certainly know at that time. But we just found him, you know, David David uh, found him and brought him in, and we met him and liked him and signed him. And then what is the, what's the process and the relationship and the creative goals between actor and agent to go from Broadway uh, character acting to HBO is now going to do these signature series. David Chase is an incredible writer. They, You'd think they may want to cast... Uh, some incredibly good-looking guy, a George Clooney with Italian heritage, but we have this bear of a man who may be right for the part. How do you make that marriage work? Well, you know, at the time, David Chase wasn't David Chase, and Jim Gandolfini wasn't Jim Gandolfini, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, they were, HBO was casting about, they did, they did uh, talk about, quote-unquote, bigger names doing it, and, and, uh, at the time, David and I were, Dave, my, my colleague David Brownstein and I were able to get him in front of David Chase very literally for an audition. I mean, Jim auditioned for that role. And, you and know, by the way, that, as you may or may not know, uh, The Sopranos had been passed on by virtually every network at the time. This is 1997, 1998. Uh, it was, you know, shocking, <laughs> different television. A lot of the conventional networks had passed on it when... Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, picked it up. I know that time well, because that was the time that you and I were doing most of our work together as well. And I know, uh, I know. Um, I hope we get to talk a little bit about that before our interview is over. So, but, that, so that's really what it was. I mean, we, we pushed to get him in a room with David Chase, and, and like all good agents who then take bows and look like geniuses, we foamed the runway, but Jim really did the rest. And what Jim had, and anybody who's seen that show, which... You know, much much smarter people than me have talked about how that may be the greatest television series of all time. Jim had an amazing ability to take the, and if you even look at his other body of work, some of the other movies that he's done, he had an amazing ability to take characters who could have been just one-dimensional and mean and cruel and give them, you know, just like the clip that you played, give them a heart and a soul and a kindness that was Jim. Let's hear a little bit of Jim Gandolfini as the person in his conversation with James Lipton on Inside the Actor's Studio. Where were you born? Westwood, New Jersey. What are your parents' names? Santa and uh, James. And where were they born? My father was born in Italy in a place called Borgataro, and then when he was two or three, he came here. My mother was born in, in, in America and moved back to Italy when she was six months old and then came back when she was about 20. And do you still have roots in Italy? Are there family yeah, there? Yeah, a lot of there are. cousins and all that. Yeah, is there, is, there is a farm, isn't there, outside Milan? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we own, we own uh, some land of a mountain that my family has owned for a long time. It's, um, basically, there's a lot of snakes and things on it, but it's there. 
And it's Italian. It's land. It is. It is. Norman Lagem, president of Levity Entertainment Group. The clip we heard with James Lipton talks about a young man who's the son of a bricklayer and a lunch lady. And you and your career have dealt with so many people in Los Angeles who whose whole life has been dedicated to the craft of acting, who have, may have come from better circumstances than Gandolfini did. Uh, what was he like as a person, both the the joy and, and the, the pleasurable parts to work with him and, and the challenging parts of working with a guy with that background? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because as I was listening to that clip and listening to his voice, it brought back uh, so many memories. I mean, Jim, you know, Jim was a, you know, he had a big heart, he had a gentle soul, which is hard to imagine if you look at that Sopranos stuff or even some of the other movies that he'd done. And, and obviously, he was a prodigious talent. But, uh, you know, he was, he, was, he was an interesting guy. He was dominating and intimidating. And at the same time, if he enveloped you and loved, you felt like nothing could go wrong, you know. And, and unfortunately, many of the memories and stories that I have, I can't really, I can't really say on your program. But... Um, but look, I mean, th- there is a lot of writing out there, and in the social media world, you're going to see a lot more overcoming days of, of uh, both the triumphs and the struggles of Jim Gandolfini. I, I, yeah, I, and he had both. And yeah. he had both. I mean, after six seasons, 85, 86 episodes of Sopranos, uh, he went on and did other things, and as it sort of swings into the polyoptic space, I want to hear a little bit of his role last year in uh, Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty as CIA Director Leon Panetta. Well, we have to get a look into the house, don't we? All right. What's this? This cluster of buildings down here. Uh, the PMA. It's the Pakistani Military Academy. It's their West Point. And how close is that to the house? About a mile. 4,221 feet. It's closer to eight-tenths of a mile. Who are you? I'm the mother that found this place, sir. Really? All right, I want to know more about who's inside this house by the end of the week. It's so amazing, Norman, because I, I went to Zero Dark Thirty, and I know Leon Panetta for 20 years. And, yeah. uh, and you know, when you actually look at Gandolfini, and I think he was uncredited coming into the movie, or you didn't know what role he was going to play. And he walks into the room at Langley, and he has the bearing of Panetta. He has the, you know it's Gandolfini, but he really gets into this Panetta role. And as I was reflecting on it over the last day or so after hearing about Jim's death, I thought that here is a big, lovable man, Leon Panetta, who spent the better part of the last five years ordering people uh, killed through his forces. And so there were a lot of corollaries between the the human Tony Soprano character who, who ran the, the mob in New Jersey and Leon Panetta who ran the CIA. Well, and, and I think that's true. And I think one of the things that's interesting, and it really is a polyoptics issue, and I mean, you know that world inside and out, but when you think about what great actors do, they create great moments, great visual moments, great emotional moments. One of the things that I think made Jim such a genius and such a talent was for the most part, if you think about actors who have created truly iconic characters, you know, Kiefer Sutherland, for example, comes to mind uh, on 24. He's a great actor, but frankly, I can't watch Kiefer in anything where I don't think, oh, it's Jack Bauer doing this, that, or the other. And really the genius of Jim, both from a polyoptic perspective, from a, a, an emotional perspective, was that even after The Sopranos, when you saw him in Zero Dark Thirty, or when you saw him in The Last Castle, or when you saw him in some of those other projects, I saw him a couple of years ago on Broadway, um, it wasn't Tony Soprano. He really engulfed himself in those roles and made you see something else. And that really, certainly as an actor, put him you know, at the tippy top for sure. And then one his- the, I'll tell you, I do have one reminisce about uh, one story that I can tell, which I'll share with you, which goes to this issue. He was very much a, uh, an actor who lost himself in his roles and who would live his roles and all that. And I remember a number of years ago, we had made a deal for him uh, to do a movie where he was playing a really bad guy, a killer, or this or that, you know, probably a character, a sleazy character, a character that made Tony Soprano probably look like Gandhi. Um, and I can't remember where they were shooting, but we had gotten him 
uh, a a suite at the Four Seasons or the Ritz Carlton, you know, some some very nice hotel to live at. And he said to me at that time, I, I don't want to stay there. I want to go and stay at the most flea bitten, you know, lousy little uh, hotel you motel room you can find me. That's where my character would live. That's where I'm going to live for the next eleven weeks. Uh, get rid of the of the suite at the at the Ritz and and put me there. And so I went. Uh, to the business of the first person, I said, but, and I, I didn't get rid of his suite, and I said, look, I, I want the suite, but also get me this hotel room, this little <laughs> seating motel room, and about, uh, but I didn't tell Jim that I hadn't let go of the suite, and about three or four days into it, he called me and said, can you get me that suite back? <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was sort of Jim, you know, he, he lived it uh, as best he could, you know? Um, and six seasons, 86 episodes of The Sopranos also, uh, Breeds great relationships, uh, certainly, uh, and new projects that that sort of have tangential connections back to what David Chase and Jim Gandolfini did with HBO and The Sopranos. One of them uh, is sort of a family affair for you. Uh, Edie Falco, who played uh, Carmela Soprano, then went on to Showtime in a project called uh, Nurse Jackie, still running, I think, uh, and it features a, a young lady named Mackenzie Elagem. Let's hear a little bit of it. You know this is pretend, right? How long do I get to keep it on? Well, I don't know. Not just for my birthday, but past it too, right? We will see how you do. Really, Fee, this is really what you want because this is going to harden up and you're going to be stuck with it for a little bit. I know. Mom? Yes, honey? Nothing's really broken. This, Norman Lagem, I hope you can speak freely about it. It's your daughter on screen. Well, I can, but I'm about to weep listening <laughs> listening to that. Mackenzie plays uh, Edie's youngest daughter on on Nurse Jackie, and it is it is an interesting full circle, you know that that she should be playing Edie's daughter, and that whole cast was very close. And we at the time we represented Jim, and we also represented we didn't represent Edie, but we represented a number of other uh, of the other actors on the show. And over the last 24 hours and talking and emailing some of them. I think everybody has a true sense of how special that all was. And, you know, it's interesting, and Josh, I think you and I have talked about this. I've had very ambivalent feelings about my little daughter uh, in the arts because it feeds, you know, there's demons and there's heartbreak and there's all sorts of things that, as a parent, which as I'm sure you know, you want to protect your child from. And so... Uh, on the one hand, I love that Mackenzie's doing something she's passionate about, and she, if she continues to be passionate, may she do it for a hundred years. But it it also um, it also carries the wolf at the door and and those demons that are scary. And you know, and Jim lives some of that too, as I'm sure you know, and it's and and as as has been widely reported. I wonder, Norman, if at some point when you decided uh, that uh, enough uh, years as being one of Hollywood's lead agents was enough that your transition to levity and basically to the world of, of organized comedy, not organized crime, was the next step for you. How did you make that decision, and how is levity going? Well, it, it was very serendipitous, really. Um, I was having lunch about uh, 15 months ago or so with my now partner, Robert Hartman, who uh, was telling me all the great things that they were doing. And, I, you know, as you know, I have a great point of view on everything, whether I know what I'm talking about or not. And I was saying, oh, you should try this, you should try that. And uh, at some point he asked me, did I want to do it with him? And so short, after saying no a couple times, I ended up saying yes. And it's, it's been great. You know, our company is what I call a multi-platform entertainment company. Um, it's, you know, we're in the management business, we're in the production business. Uh, we have a digital agency, which is a, has been a whole new area of growth and, and learning for me. And then we own or own about 30 comedy clubs around the country. So um, it really gives me an opportunity. I think it's really the me- a media company for the very much for the 21st century, as your former boss Bill Clinton might have said, um, because it it really works. We work at the intersection of traditional media and digital media. Um, and, and, you know, creating content, creating IP, and getting it out there. And it's been a lot of fun. And so from the management side, I still get to uh, represent some clients, although that's only a portion of what I do. 
And it, it allows me to do, Josh, what I very much tried to help you do, which was actually produce some things. And that's been a lot of fun. And we'll keep working on that, Norman. I will, we will never stop coming up with ideas and having our dinners and our phone calls and, and uh, trying to make a little bit of a content creator out of me. And for everything well, I, that I look, I look forward to continuing that process for many years to come. Well, it's been 20 years already. You're $7,000 in, so your stakes are, <laughs> are in the table, Norman. Thanks a in lot for, for joining us. For a <laughs> All right, pal. Best of luck. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.